change. You know, we're in a, an election season. This is 2020, and it's not what any of us thought it was going to be as we entered this year. I mean, think about where we were this time last year. We're moving toward Halloween, fall festivals on the horizon, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and then this incredible year, 2020. All of us expected that this would be a unique and, and interesting and encouraging year, an incredible year with special moments. I mean, it's 2020 after all. We don't really, most people don't get to experience a year that has reciprocating numbers, 2020. Think about when the last time that happened, 1010. 11, 11. It's, I mean, that doesn't happen often. The, the way it's transpired now won't come ground again until 30, 30, 1,010 years from now. So we were set up that this is going to be this awesome year, this banner year, and yet that has been anything but that. All the things that we predicted and sought to experience have not really played themselves out, even though we can say that this has been a year for the ages, but I bet we would say this this morning, you golfers, can we have a mulligan? Can we do it over? When I go play golf, I need like 20 mulligans or my score is in the 200s. So I'm always looking for a mulligan. I'm always looking for the guy not paying attention so I can kind of just drop my ball on the fairway and act like it's there. I don't really do that, by the way. I'm not that big of a cheater. I need to because I'm that bad. But we want a mulligan in the year of 2020. I mean, think about what we've experienced this year as a nation, as a people. We've experienced culture wars and protests, things of the like that we've not seen in 50 years since the civil rights movement in the 60s. Political upheaval, riots, lawlessness, constant protests. We've seen them paralyze the nation's cities. We've even seen it right here in our own Richmond back door. There's been an ever-increasing lack of social decorum and mutual respect in society, especially within our government structures and political areas and, and just politicians in general. In fact, what we usually see in the area of politicians is when they're talking, when they're debating, it's more like a WWE wrestling match than it is a conversation and a debate. Each side of the aisle accuses the other of incredible atrocities, accusing the other person of not being American, if not being inhumane. Then there's the professional athletes, the sports leagues that have become nothing more than billboards for personal and corporate protests. Everywhere you turn, we're being messaged and somebody's telling us what we should think, what we should believe. Spewing their vitriol and all of that anger is expressed and compounded throughout social media. I mean, if you turn on your social media, you look at Facebook, Twitter, whatever you're looking at, it's nothing more than a cesspool of unmitigated rage spewed with no accountability whatsoever. You can say whatever you want, call anybody what you want, and do anything, and there's no ramifications for it. If the political and the racial components of 2020 were not enough, we've experienced a number of natural disasters this year. There have been 27, 27 tropical depressions, of which 26 have become tropical storms. I saw this morning that there's another, another tropical storm that's moving into a hurricane to hit the Gulf Coast later this week. Eight of those storms have become hurricanes. Three of them have become major hurricanes. All of those hurricanes and tropical storms have killed over 140 people. They've damaged billions and billions of dollars in property. Wildfires have been devastating this year as well. According to the National Interagency Fire Center, as of October 19th, this past Thursday, 
46,148 wildfires have burned 8.4 million acres of land. That is 2.1 million acres more than the 10-year average. It's been a monumental year for us, politically, socially, natural disasters. Add on top of that, COVID-19, which has impacted us and it's shut down the world, We've seen economies collapse, we've seen businesses close, we've seen people die, all because of a virus that came out of China. Is this what you expected 2020 to be? It's not what I expected 2020 to be. All of these factors have made the current political season volatile, confusing, and frustrating. And so this morning, I want to address the situation that we find ourselves in today. I, I don't typically, as you know, preach political messages, but this morning, in light of where we're at as a nation, in light of the election upcoming, I believe it's in, in, incumbent upon me as a pastor to speak prophetically to the church. How should we look at this? How should we view what's going to be taking place? How should we vote? Now, I'm not going to tell you which candidate to vote for this morning. If you came here and, and this whole thing makes you uncomfortable, I'm not going to do that. It's not my job necessarily to do that. I, I'm not going to trump for a person. No pun intended, by the way. I didn't mean to say that. Got myself in trouble. What I will do is I will speak to the issues. I will speak to the platforms. I will ask some questions that we need to be asking of the Lord and ourselves as a Christian, as a church, as a country. And then I want to talk about the remedy for that. Because the reality is in this country there is an ideological divide, one that we must identify, one that we must understand. We need to know where we should be in this divide, what side of it, if any side. There are major questions that we need to ask of the Lord, how he's going to relate to us as a nation. And I believe it's critical to realize the hope and change that we long for in America, it will not, and I would say it cannot be found in government cannot be found in man's policies and philosophies and social awareness that we're trying to create today. So again, my goal is not to tell you how to vote insofar as naming which candidate is good for you or which candidate is bad for you. Instead, I want to look at the issues and in this moment in our nation's history, speak from a biblical theological perspective that ought to uh, lead you and dictate how you vote and who you vote Four. And so I want to call your attention to how we as the people of God must respond in light of all that we're experiencing in America today. And with that said, three major things that I want us to look at. I've already kind of laid it out. But the first thing I want us to talk about is the fact that in our country today, there are two diametrically opposed platforms. Amen? If you watch TV, you listen to the news, you watch debates, you listen to anything, you read anything out there, you see these platforms, and they are diametrically opposed to one another. One side of that, there's nothing wrong with being diametrically opposed. In fact, that we uh, can be able to debate this is good for us. In fact, one of the beautiful aspects of this American experience, if you will, is that for 244 years, we have expressed and debated, debated various and many times competing ideas. That's who we are as a country. I enjoyed watching the debate the other night. I enjoyed our, the candidates going back and forth with one another and, and challenging one another and talking against one another. That's good for the soul. It's good for understanding. We as a nation have disagreed even to the point of secession and civil war, right? 
We understand debate. We understand differences of opinions. And yet throughout our history, we've remained centered in our convictions and commitment to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We've been able to come together for the sake of national defense and the good of our fellow man. That's who we are as Americans. Unfortunately, there has been, I think we're all aware of this, an infiltration into our educational system for the past number of decades, 50 years or so, maybe more. This infiltration has begun to question and challenge our basic beliefs and understandings of who we are as Americans. And it's led to a shift moving away from conservative, originalist type of understandings to more progressive and liberal understandings of what it means to be American and understand our founding documents. So the divide has never been plainer than it is today. Therefore, I believe it's important to identify the shift and reject it. Now, let me say this before we go any further. Before I lay out some key components of this ideological shift, I think it's critical that we recognize as a follower of Jesus, I'm speaking to the church this morning, right? I'm speaking to the people of God, those who say we believe the Bible, we believe the book, we're going to live by the book, we're going to align our lives around the book. And so I believe it's important that we recognize as a follower of Jesus, our chief loyalty, it is not to the U.S. Constitution. It is not to even being an American and what it means to be a citizen of this great nation. I'm not disparaging those two things. I hold those two things up. I celebrate those two things. But my loyalty as a follower of Jesus is not to them, first and foremost. My loyalty, our loyalty, our chief loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ because we are first and foremost citizens of his kingdom. So with that said, we're ambassadors for the Lord Jesus in this world, in this nation. We're called to be salt and light in a country that is dark and in need of preservation. We preach the gospel and we stand for truth. That's who we're to be in a nation that desperately needs to hear the message of the gospel. So let's talk about these two diametrically opposed platforms. Generally speaking, these are the positions of our two major parties. They have two diametrically opposed platforms. Let me lay them out briefly. The Democrat Party is pro-abortion. The Democrats in our nation are pro-abortion. We would say, as a follower of Jesus, I would say they're pro-death. They reject the sanctity of life. They want to expand this culture of death that we have allowed to be created. And that has been evidenced by our own governor this past year who held up that and celebrated what I would call nothing more than infanticide. Even allowing a child to be born, taken out of the mother's womb, laid on a table, and it's okay for that child to die. That is the Democrat Party today. Now, does every Democrat believe that? No. But the platform of the party is pro-abortion, pro-death. We know this. We've seen it. We watched a couple weeks ago Democrat senators lecture Judge Amy Coney Barrett in that process of nominating her and and, and, uh, moving her toward um, confirmation there in those hearings. We heard them lecture her about her religious convictions that stem from what I what they call, quote unquote, the dogma that lives loud in her or runs deep in her. They fear that she may one day be the deciding vote that reverses Roe versus Wade. So Democrats are pro-abortion. They also are, and they also reject the sanctity of marriage. 
their LGBTQ policies undermine, and they punish those who would advocate and believe in and seek to practice traditional marriage while rewarding those of homosexual and transgender persuasions. In addition to that, Democrats prefer socialism over capitalism. You say, what does that mean? Well, that means they believe in wealth distribution. They believe that is what's yours is not really yours. You may have earned it, you may have built it, you may have accumulated it, but it's not yours. It is ours, and it's to be distributed as the government so fits. Democrats also may have made it clear that they do not believe in the First and Second Amendments. They are and will restrict free speech and religious liberty. We are seeing this in our country. The suppression of free speech is on full display as those who, with big money and big pockets, big tech, in other words, squelch news stories that they would deem, quote-unquote, inappropriate. I didn't know they were the gatekeepers of free speech. Religious liberty has also been vehemently under attack in every Democrat-led state, right, during this COVID shutdown. We've seen that. What the church has had to do is we, the church has actually had to file lawsuits against mayors and, and municipalities and states to win back our religious freedom that has been restricted during COVID. We're able to do this this morning because some courageous Believers in the Roanoke area took a lawsuit against our governor, which his lawyers withdrew from, which gave churches 250 and below freedoms where we can meet and worship together without any sort of restrictions. Now, we're going to follow CDC guidelines, and we're going to be smart with all of this, but it's not the government's decision or job to tell us how to worship and how to practice our faith. On the flip side, the Republican platform, and let me just say it, that they're not flawless, they're flawed as well. But here's the, 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 the opposite of the Democrat platform. Republicans believe in the sanctity of life. We have a president and we have governors in red states across our nation who believe and are leading in the area of the sanctity of life. Republican platform believes in the sanctity of marriage. They believe in free speech. They believe in a free press. They believe in religious liberty. They believe in a robust, capitalistic economy. There's no doubt that the two platforms are in oppositions to one another. There's no wiggle room in our country for kind of towing the line and riding the fence. That's not here. And so what happens is it leads to a rift in the nation. And no one wants division. No one likes division. But there are times when division is all that we can have, right? There's a time where you have to say, I can't go with you. I can't walk with you. I can't align myself with you because I'm just ideologically opposed to that. Philosophically, I'm opposed to that. Theologically, I'm opposed to your position and your stance on certain issues. And so there is a rift. So those, there are times when that rift is imperative. You think back through history, we've had many of those. One such was December 7th, 1941. America was trying its best to stay out of the Second Great War as it was kind of beginning to churn. And so we were resisting that pull to enter that arena and enter that war until that morning in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese fleet launched hundreds of aircraft and bombed a naval station. What was our decision at that point? You go to war. A rift has been, had been made. 9-11 is another example of being forced into a decision like that. 
And so today in America, there are certain platform issues and agendas that we as the people of God, listen to this, must resolutely be firm upon in our biblical convictions and never waver. Let me give you three of those. Number one, the sanctity of life. We must not and we dare not ever waver in our commitment to the sanctity of human life. Why is that? It's because God is the creator and he's the giver of life. God is a God of life. He's not the God of death. God is the God of life. He gives life. He creates life. And he forbids us to take life, to murder. That is the Ten Commandment. Amen? So we stand with the God who is the giver of life. The Bible makes it very clear to us, abundantly clear, that life begins at conception. You don't believe that? Go to Psalm 119, 139, and read there verses 13 through 16. And the Bible will tell you, the psalmist will tell you, that the Lord knits the baby in the womb. We as Christians believe that conception, life begins at conception. It's not a fetus. That may be a medical term. That may be a science term. That is a human being. If it's not a human being, then why do many, many, if not the vast majority of women who experienced abortion, maybe some of you ladies in here who have experienced abortion could testify. I don't know that we have any, but maybe you could testify to this. Why is it so that, that, that if it's not a baby, that there's such emotional trauma that comes upon a woman who experiences an abortion? You can't tell me it's not a human life. That baby is precious to the Lord. All life is precious to the Lord. The taking of life is spoken against vehemently in Scripture because life is precious to him. Whether it's in the womb or outside the womb, God is the giver of life. Therefore, we must sanctify life and wholeheartedly protect life. There's a second area, and that is the sanctity of marriage. Think back with me to the Garden of Eden. What does God do in the garden? He creates Adam. He creates him from the dust. He blows air into his nostrils. He gives him life. There in the garden, Adam begins to realize there's not a helper suitable for me. Uh, The lion's got the lioness, the the white-tailed deer, God bless him. He has the the buck, has the doe. Almost got one of those does on the road this morning. That would have been fun on a Sunday morning. He looks around. He sees every creature has its mate. Adam's like, I don't have a mate. I need somebody. And God gives him his perfect mate gives him Eve, made from the rib of his own side, someone who would perfectly complete him, someone who would be a helper to him, someone he could be in relationship with. God created that. Eve was a lifelong partner and spouse, a wife to Adam. And so we see all throughout the Bible that it affirms the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. We believe in the sanctity of marriage. And yet we see in our churches all across the nation, that we really don't believe in the sanctity of marriage as marriage after marriage after marriage ends in divorce, isn't moved into the proper way, it's not built on a stable foundation. We must, as the people of God, sanctify marriage once again. And along with that, keep it within its biblical parameters. One woman, one man, one lifetime. It's not a man and a man. It's not a woman and a woman. It's not a man who identifies as a woman or a woman who identifies with a man who's kind of getting that other type of partner. No, transgenderism, homosexuality has no place. And the nation has no place in the people of God because the Bible, both Old and New Testament, speaks against it and pronounces judgment upon it. There's a third area. Man, i got to hurry. 
religious liberty. We must not waver on religious liberty. I mean, think about the words from the Declaration of, the Ind- of Independence. Our own Thomas Jefferson said this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Bible advocates for freedom. And that advocation that is throughout Scripture is the foundation for which our forefathers drafted this document. God desires for men and women to be free so they might choose to worship Him. There are many other important issues that we should consider as we go to the ballot box, but here are three we cannot waver upon. Here's a statement. I want you to hear this clearly this morning. No person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus and one who believes the Bible should vote for any candidate who violates the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and religious liberty. I want you to hear that from me. That's what I'm telling you this morning. I don't believe you should vote for any candidate if they don't stand for where the Bible stands for on these issues. You can disagree about a lot of things. We dare not disagree on these major issues. Regrettably, these three have been grossly violated for decades, though. Think about it. 60 million unborn babies have been murdered in their mother's womb since Roe versus Wade made abortion on demand legal in this country. 60 million. Obviously, the issue of life encompasses more than just abortion. We would argue that. We should sanctify life from birth, from conception through death. Drug abuse, violence, euthanasia, all issues that come up in play with that. The way we treat our elderly should be a part of that model, that, that understanding of the sanctity of life. But the magnitude, the sheer magnitude of the number of abortions performed over the last 40 plus years glares at us as a nation. And I would say brings judgment and condemnation upon us as a nation. 20 or so years ago, the recognition of civil unions began to quickly move. Now we've got homosexual marriage is the norm. And and the new norm is transgenderism, where you can identify as anything and everything, and you can be accepted and okay. Sure, we're going to accept you as a person, as the people of God. We've never been a people who would deny the personal rights of an individual, but we cannot redefine sexuality, as we talked about this summer. And yet, that's the glaring thing within our country. The movement toward these extremes has tightened religious liberties. Think about it. Now, if you preach against those areas, what I'm doing right now in some areas can be considered a hate speech. It's, in, it's happening in other countries. You can say this stuff in Canada. You can say this stuff in other places in Europe. And it will be a day here in America where you dare not speak against these things and call them sin. Because you dare not have or express religious liberty. Think about all the things that are happening in our country, the atrocities and the sin that we have abounded. We cannot expect to be a nation blessed by God when we fail to value what he values. And so this truth is what we should only expect, and that is judgment. Leads us to two questions, two major questions that we need to ask of the Lord and of ourselves. Psalm 33, 12, you probably know this, says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is that nation. Happy is that nation. Experiencing the joy and the provision and the protection of your country. Those are the people who have God as their Lord. Now, logic would tell us that if if a people intentionally disregards word and the ordering of things, then he is not their Lord. 
And so I think our former president rightly said several years ago that we are not a Christian nation. That's just saying the, the, the reality, the fact. We are not a Christian nation. We've walked away from that. We're walking in rebellion against the Lord. You think about lordship. Lordship brings blessings, while disobedience does nothing but result in judgment. We know what the Bible teaches us. We know that God instructed his people that if they would listen and do the things that he commanded, then he would bless them. Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. As he's given the second law and before he passes off the scene and they begin to enter the promised land, he reiterates the commands of God. And he tells them, if you will follow these, you'll have the blessing, the provision, the protection of God. But if you don't, Deuteronomy 7, expect judgment. Expect exile. Expect the judging, punishing hand of God to come against you. Now, we know that America is not the new Israel. We don't have some sort of special plan like Israel did in the salvation movements and history of God. But I do believe the principle given to them applies to us. Any nation who would dare choose to follow the Lord God, believe his word, obey it, flesh it out in their lives, stake their lives upon it, build their families upon it, that nation, that people can expect the blessing and the provisional hand of God upon it. The opposite is also true. Why did the Lord, this little history lesson, as Israel was going into the quote-unquote promised land, why did the Lord dispel the other nations from before Israel? It wasn't because Israel was better than They'd already shown that they were not. They wandered around 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience and lack of faith. But he dispelled the nations because they were already sinful and rebellious against God. So their destruction was God's judgment upon them. So when we think about that, two major questions arise. Here's the first one. Will God give America what we deserve? Think about that. Will God give America what we deserve? In light of our culture of death, in light of the sexual immorality that is so rampant among us, in light of the idolatry that we practice and live by, will the Lord finally bring judgment upon us? Will he do it? Do we deserve the judgment? I think 60 million babies who've been sacrificed to the gods of convenience and pleasure would say, yes, we deserve the judging hand of God. The second question, will God give America what we do not deserve? Grace. Could the Lord be patient and gracious with America for a little bit longer? There are all kinds of illustrations we could go to in the Lord's Word. Speak of grace, like Ricky reminded us of. Judgment, the mercy of God. We can see that all over, everywhere, but I ask you to put your finger there in 2 Chronicles 33. What we see in 2 Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles 33 are two stories about the same person. 2 Kings doesn't give us the full story. 2 Chronicles 33 does. What we see in that story is that Manasseh, King Manasseh, is the king of Judah. He is the heir to the throne from Hezekiah, who was a godly man. He reigned for like 25 years, and he had some bad times there at the end. But he was a godly man, a faithful man. He tore down the idols. He tore down the high places. He tore down the places where the, the people of God, the Judahites, were going to worship rather than coming to the temple. He was seeking to preserve holiness within the kingdom. King Manasseh took over at the age of 12, and he did anything and everything but that. He was a wicked king. He was an ungodly king. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the nations that God had driven out of the land. 
We see here that he rebuilt the high places. He erected altars to the Baals. He made an Asheroth and worshipped the stars. He went so far as to erect altars to idols inside the temple of God there in Jerusalem and offered his sons as burnt offerings. He was a wicked, evil idolater. He practiced the occult and led all of Judah to do more evil than all the nations before them. We see that in the first nine verses of chapter 33. So God, what does he do? Graciously and mercifully, he sends prophets to warn the king, to call the king to repentance, to point out his sin. And yet Manasseh continued to refuse to listen and to heed. And so God sent the king of Assyria against Judah, and Manasseh was captured. He was taken to Babylon, and it was there in Babylon, in prison, perhaps even in chains, no longer in the palace, no longer living high on the hog, no longer enthroned, and the people coming to him. Now he is nothing more than a prisoner in a foreign land under a foreign king, and he's humbled. His eyes were opened. The Bible tells us that he begins to pray before the Lord and to humble himself before God. Look there in verse 13, one verse that I want to read. The Bible says he, that is Manasseh, prayed to him, God. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, the thing that happened in King Manasseh's heart is the very thing that needs to happen in the hearts of Americans today. When you think about these questions, will God bring judgment on America that we deserve? Is it not already here? Are we not already experiencing the judging hand of God? I believe it's already here. I believe the moral decline that we're witnessing is nothing more than a symptom of the cancer that is eating us from the inside out. As we suppress the truth, what does the Lord do? What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 1? As we suppress the truth, he gives us over to the desires of our heart. He gives us what we want. We want sin? Have it. Eat to the full. Enjoy it. and See if it will fill your Satisfy your appetites. The judgment of God against America is his accommodation of our insatiable desire for sin. So I believe in many ways liberalism and the progressive left is nothing more than God's judgment against our sin. If we refuse to acknowledge his lordship and live by his rules, then he will do nothing more than give us what we deserve. And yet that's not what we need. So will God give us what we do not deserve? Will he extend mercy and grant grace? God will because he is gracious and kind. We see that in Scripture. We just read about it, right? King Manasseh, wicked to the core. What does God do? Graciously and mercifully brings him back to the kingdom, puts him back on the throne, and allows him to reestablish his kingdom. He didn't have to do that. Should have been a spike in his head. It should have been crucifixion. It should have been boiled or burned at the stake. It should have been some sort of wicked and horrible death because that is exactly what he deserved. But God in his grace and God in his mercy extended it to Manasseh. As he humbled himself and turned from his wickedness, God met him with grace and with mercy. That brings us to one source of hope this morning. See, the real hope for America will never be found in a political platform. It will not be found in a politician's rhetoric. I love to listen to politicians speak. I've been a political junkie for my entire adult life that I can remember. I listen to it all the time. I pay attention to it. I, I, I think I'm well-versed in where we're at as a country. 
it disturbs me when I hear politicians who can't put two words together and make a sentence in an argument. I love rhetoric, but it's not about rhetoric. I, I love people who can share their point and their perspective, but it's not about that. See, hope, the kind that sees the future as being brighter than the past, that type of hope only comes from repentance and faith. That type of hope is only found in the Lord Jesus. It is found in the God of the Bible that we've read about this morning. It's important, don't, don't misunderstand, it's important for President Trump and former Vice President Biden to debate and wrestle over policy as we've seen during this season of politics. It's beneficial for us to watch this happen on a local, state, and national level. We need that sort of debate. We need that sort of differing of opinions and and back and forth there, that tension. And yet the only hope for lasting change, the change that is a blessing for all people, is Christ working through his church. It's not through politics. It's not through the government. It's not through some sort of welfare program. It's not through some sort of stimulus package. It's not some sort of legislation or Supreme Court ruling. The only hope for America is Jesus Christ working through his church. He's not going to set his feet down on this land until it's too late for people. So how is he going to change the hearts and minds of people? He's going to do it through his Holy Spirit working in his people. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The title of the message this morning is Change Begins Here. This is what the verse is saying. The change we need, the hope we need, the newness that we need, the turnaround that we need, it begins right here. What does right here mean? Right here, you, us, the church. Powhatan needs the people of God that is so in love with Jesus, that's willing to say what you're doing is sinful, we love you in the name of Jesus, what you're doing is wrong. And there's hope for you, though. You're a sinner, you're under condemnation, you're headed to a devil's hell, but there's hope for you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to share the gospel with you. I love you enough to allow that to be fleshed out, pressed out through my life so that you'll be drawn to faith and repentance in Jesus. That's what our country needs. That's what our state needs. That's what Powhatan County needs, the greater Richmond area. Your home needs that. And so it's incumbent upon us as individual believers, incumbent upon us as the people of God, as a church, we must be the one where the change begins. It's not going to happen at the ballot box. It's not going to happen on Capitol Hill. It's not going to be in the Oval Office. We're not going to find it in downtown Richmond. The change begins in your heart. It begins in my heart as we do what 2 Chronicles 7.14 tells us, what Manasseh modeled for us in chapter 33, is that we would see God's face. We would pray and seek his face, turn from our sin. Then the promise is God will hear, forgive, and heal. There's nothing that we need more than those three things. God hearing us, healing us, and forgiving us of our sin. In nine days, the night of November 3rd and whatever happens after that, however long it takes to count ballots, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Right now, people are beginning to gear up for the riots that are coming. I've joked about it. We've got to go to the store and get some more ammo. I mean, I'm just kind of joking about that. And yet, if you live in certain places, you probably ought to have some ammo. It's going to get crazy. 50% of, if at best, 50% of our nation is going to be ticked off and angry the night of November 3rd. 
Now, some are loony, and they will writhe and protest and burn down. We've seen that this summer, right? We've seen that. The others might have some fringe crazies that would do that, but the others are probably not going to do that. But you're going to be disappointed. Unfortunately, even in the church, close to 50% of the people are going to be disappointed on who's getting elected. And so if your hope is in who's going to be in the White House or in the Senate position or who's going to represent you in the U.S. Congress or who's going to be whatever the election might be in whatever place, if your hope is in that person holding that position, you're going to be a really disillusioned in nine days. And so we got to be better than that. We must fix our eyes on something, better yet, someone who is bigger and better. Today, I believe America is in the shape she is in because the church has failed her. We've lost our first love. You see, the church has become enamored with the things of the world. We've loosened our grip on the Bible. You know, we're a Bible-believing church. There's one thing to say you believe the Bible. It's another thing to live the Bible. The church has condoned and many times modeled sin for others. Unfortunately, our Catholic friends, this past week, the Pope came out and in a video really move their position forward in embracing homosexual marriage to the detriment of the Catholic Church and to the detriment of billions across America, across the world. So the church is not modeled godliness and holiness. Go to any mainline denomination in our country, and they're no longer the guardians of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They have forsaken their role and duty. And so as you look at the church in America, Big C, we're to blame for the decadence present among our people. And so it's time that we humble ourselves and pray and confess our sin and that of our nation. It's time for us to plead with God for his mercy and his grace. So when we talk about change, we all want change. We want it to be better than it's ever been. We want to move and progress and become healthier and wealthier and things will be easier and, and, and just more freedom. All of it, we love that. It's not going to happen in a governmental policy or platform. It's going, to hum, it's going to happen as we humble ourselves as the people of God. Pray and seek the face of God. What are we doing in all that? We're confessing sin. Why does God forgive in the latter part of that verse? Because they humbled, prayed, and sought the face of God. They've confessed their sin. They've owned it. They've, they've taken it to the altar of the Lord and nailed it there and asked his forgiveness, asked his, his, his cleansing power. They've repented of that sin. Change begins there. Now, do we as Christians pull away from the politics of our nation? Absolutely not. Yesterday morning, I was driving into Midlothian to pick Ricky up to come back for our rehearsal with our worship team, and I was listening to Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers of all time. And Adrian, I don't know when he preached that because he's been with the Lord for like 12, 15 years. But Adrian was preaching a message. Of course, it was alliterated. If you've ever listened to Adrian Rogers, everything's alliterated. He went, peas, peas, peas. His, all of his points were peas. But man, he was right on track with where I was. I'm like, I got the same Holy Spirit he does. It was encouraging. You know what Adrian Rogers said in that message yesterday? He said something to the effect that we dare not, as the people of God, pull ourselves out of the political process. 
He went so far as to say that it's, in his opinion, it is sinful for a Christian not to engage in the political arena. I would concur with that. I would amen that. How dare we as Christians not take our rightful citizen duty as a follower of Jesus and vote in the system and just give it up to lost, ungodly, unrighteous people to determine what the future of your life, your family, your church, and your nation is going to be like. How dare us do that? Now, if you haven't registered to vote, I'm going to gently say this. Shame on you. It's too late now. As far as I understand, it was last week, the last week to, or last day to register. Shame on you. You better vote this next election series next year when we, we vote in a, a governor and other things. It's important for us to do that. We don't pull away from that. I mean, think about it. Who do we need more in politics? It's followers of Jesus that believe this book. We got to vote. We got to engage in the political and democratic process of our government. But as believers, when we think about that, we vote not based upon pocketbook, though I, that's important. Economics and finances is important. Uh, taxes and all of that's important. Capitalism is important. I mean, the, the capitalism of our nation has enabled the church to take the gospel to places it never could take the gospel for the previous 19 centuries. We vote not on that stuff. We vote based on biblical convictions, highlighting life, marriage, and religious liberty. Three crucial areas that God's serious about. But more important than all of that, we got to humble ourselves and seek the favor of God. There will be a day that America is no longer America. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know when that's going to happen. But every nation that's ever existed, except for the ones who presently exist, has ceased to exist. We've seen empires, massive empires. Babylon was conquered by Persia Medes. Um, Greeks conquered the Persians. The Romans conquered the Greeks. Britain, the great British Empire, conquered everybody, right? You got Egypt in there. All these great empires conquered all, all the other empires. That's going to continue to happen to the end. Our nation will seek to exist. And the only reason we've existed for 244 years is the grace of God. But that grace is waning. There's holes in that bucket. And if we don't begin to get on our face as the people of God, and begin to stop up the holes in, those, in that bucket, America will no longer cease to exist. Now, I'm not saying we do that just for the sake of America. God's got greater plans than, than America. But this nation has been a blessing to the nations because it was founded on biblical principles. So what is our role? We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek the face of the God. This morning, I, we're going to call you to spend a day in prayer and fasting if you can. I know some of you can't medically, but figure out that. What, what, I would say you need to fast from food, but I understand some of you might not be able to, but fast in some way. This week or this coming weekend, spend time praying. We've created a sheet. Mike, one of our elders, came up with this the other day, laid it all out. And so those sheets are in the back. They're also on either side of these wings as you leave this morning. Grab that 8.5 by 11 sheet. They'll walk you through four aspects, four things to be praying for as you fast during that day, seeking the face of God on behalf of our nation in lieu of next Tuesday's vote. We've also provided voter guides uh, that have been given to us, as always, from certain um, Christian-based, faith-based organizations. Those are in the front 
uh, the, the foyer as well as here on the sides as well. I want to encourage you to get those if you're not as informed, which is kind of hard these days to not know what people are. You either never watch the news, which I understand why you wouldn't, and you never turn on the television whatsoever because you can't watch television without um, 45 commercials on politicians in between your episode. And so you've basically been living under a rock for the last two and a half years. I, I get it. Some of you made that, but I doubt most of you are that way. This might help you this morning. They're just straight down the line, not going to say who you should vote for, but it'll lay out the areas that are important, the main platforms, and tell them, tell you where those people stand. Man, it's 1014 already. Good night. This was supposed to be a short message. Let's pray. Ricky's going to come, and we're going to sing. How, how do you wrap up a message like this? I think we should pray for our country, right? We've talked a lot about the need for people in our nation to hear the gospel. Maybe someone here sitting in this room or watching this online, the greatest need in your life is not to know which politician to vote for on election day, but the greatest need in your life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. You know, the Bible tells us that God loves us. He made us. He created us. He desires to be in relationship with us. That's why he's so gracious. That's why he's so long-suffering. Because he desires. You know, 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's gracious. And so this morning, the greatest need in your life is to understand your sinfulness, your need for a Savior, and to turn to him in faith and repentance. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that. For us as followers of Jesus... Let's renew our commitment to the Lord. Recommit ourselves to the things God's committed to. You know, I said earlier that uh, we should not expect the blessing of God when we don't value what he values. And so if we don't value what he values, and it's, you really know that by how you live, you, you know that by the sin that you're accommodating in your life, that's how you know whether or not you value, value God's values. And if that's not true of you, what do you need to do? Turn to Jesus. Lord, I'm sinned. This is an area of my life I'm not serious about. I need to be serious about this. Forgive me. I deserve judgment. God, give me grace. Let's pray this morning. God, we, we know you're a good God. We know you're gracious. We know you're kind and long-suffering. If it weren't so, all of us individually would have been wiped out long ago. And we know our country wouldn't have existed this long if it wasn't for the grace long-suffering, the patience of a good God. This morning, we need you, Lord. We need you personally. We need you in our families. God, we need you in our church. How dare we go through life as a quote-unquote follower of Jesus and not walk in step with you, and yet we know that we do that all the time. And we pay the price for it. And yet you love us. And as a loving Father, you call us to yourself. You wait for us. And you give grace instead of punishment. We received that this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would point out the areas in our life that are not right. Things we've kind of wavered from and positions ground to. How we're not living holy before our friends and family, co-workers, classmates, neighbors. God, forgive us. God, as a nation, we confess this morning that we are a culture of death. And we as a church have been way too silent. 
God, we confess that we as a nation are nothing more than a bunch of idolaters. Sure, we may not worship Buddha or some idol fashioned of gold or wood or stone, but Lord, we, we worship a lot of idols. Convenience and pleasure, health and wealth, recreation, material things, sex. God, we have experienced the repercussions for all of that. Forgive us, God, as a nation. Have mercy on us. As we as a people humble and pray and seek your face, God, would you, as your word says, hear, forgive, and heal. Do it in the church, Lord. We, we desire revival. God, we believe that the, the, the world out there will never be awakened until we here as the people of God are revived. And so shake us from our slumber. Shake us from our apathy and complacency and do a new and fresh work among us, Lord. Be gracious and be merciful. Oh God, don't give us what we deserve. Give us grace. Stand to our feet. We're going to sing this song about the grace of God. Forget about the time. Our small group leaders will forgive me. This morning, if God is speaking into your life, I want to encourage you to respond. This is a special day for us. God wants to do something special in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus and God has speak, spoken in some form or fashion, whatever you need, if you need to come up here and pray, you do that. If you want to flip around in your pew there and get on your knees. You just stand there, hands, whatever posture you need to be in this morning. Respond in faith. Anybody who's with us online, respond in faith. If you need to know Jesus this morning, I'm going to stand right here. We're going to do something new. We haven't done it in seven months. I'd love to speak with you about the gospel. So let's respond.